This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. The specter of teen suicide is again in the news. Do you feel prepared to broach that uncomfortable topic with your students? Our teachers have advice. Plus, some teachers in Indiana are upset after some of them were shot with pellets during an active shooter drill. Our teachers can empathize. They've done drills where blanks were fired. And should the ACT and SAT tests be timed? Our teachers have mixed opinions. Those topics plus kids these days on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Greg Brenner, welcome back. Yeah, good to be back. And what do you teach? High school social studies. So... You're in. You sound a little bit sick. A little you, bit. You've had your, you and your family have had a little bit yeah, of a bug. Yeah, it's that, that bug that's just going around, and, and it's kind of like winter. It just does not want to let go. <laughs> but you're powering through. Yep. With, so thank- da- with Dayquil. Thanks. <laughs> thank you, medicine. So thank you for being here. Paul Donovan, you're back as well. What do you teach? I teach um, the dual credit math classes in high school. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here as well. And Maria Kennedy. You're back. What do you teach? Hello. I teach AP U.S. History. So we actually, I'm just realizing this now, we have three high school teachers at the table today. Mm-hmm. Greg, Paul, mm-hmm. and Maria, all teachers in the Kansas City metro area. Before we get started, just a reminder, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, the Friday Cheat Sheet, at NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com. The Friday Cheat Sheet gives you a preview of what we'll be talking about on the next episode and also a review of some of the interesting education stories that caught our eye during the week that was. It's your teacherly take on the world in your inbox. You can sign up again for the Friday Cheat Sheet at NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com. Well, it may not be the topic we want to talk about, but it's one that we feel we should try to at least address this week. Two students who survived the school shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida last year, died recently, both by apparent suicide. The deaths came within a week of each other, and we should also mention were followed shortly thereafter by the death, again by apparent suicide, of a father of a student who was killed in the 2012 school shooting in Newtown, Connecticut. These high-profile deaths have raised many questions, like what is the effect of the unique and often public trauma survivors of school shootings experience, and what do we understand and not understand about that? And for educators and really American society more broadly, uh, bigger questions like what are we doing with kids and saying to them when news of suicides gets reported in the media? How are we dealing with this when suicide becomes the topic of conversation in school lunchrooms and in hallways? And how do we talk to kids or even just be mindful of their states of mind whenever suicide comes up as it all too frequently does? First things first for the teachers here on this episode. I guess, do high-profile suicides like this or even a a suicide of a student that may not make national news but might impact your local school community more directly, does that make you, does that put you on edge? Does that make you think more about your own students? And does it prompt you to to maybe try to address it, either in a whole class setting or with individual students you may be worried about? Yeah, but my first reaction is to, I, I wish I could just run and hide and stick my head in the ground and not talk about it. 
because it is it's 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 a difficult thing to think about to talk about just because everybody has had some type of relationship you know with with somebody who's dealt with suicide or attempted suicide either a family member friend somebody and so it's impacted everybody and so in, in some ways like my personal reaction is like I don't really want to mess with it mm-hmm. I don't want to talk about it I know we have to I don't know it's it's important that that it is addressed but man God, I'd rather just talk about American well, I government. I imagine a lot of teachers feel like that, right? That it's something that um, you would rather avoid. Sure. Well, it's tricky, too, because, <clears throat> I mean, there's a lot of evidence uh, around, like, this idea of contagion suicide mm-hmm. or cluster suicides. And so one thing that current research does seem to suggest is that publicizing suicide or talking about suicide can actually increase rates of suicide, especially within teenagers. So... It's tricky because on the one hand, you – I think, Greg, to your point, you don't want to not talk about it or be there or or intervene. And you also do not want to unnecessarily or like unwittingly encourage – not that you would ever encourage suicide, but just like unwittingly sort of set the stage for a suicide or or create an environment that fosters that or publicizes it. Yeah, yeah I mean – so you're you're saying just even bringing up the issue, whether it be in class, even if it is in a thoughtful way, or just talking about it with an individual student, that that kind of plants the idea or puts the idea front of mind for someone who might be um, having some mental health struggles. Uh, I mean, I think that's like like that's like what cluster suicide would suggest, right? Like the research around that. Uh, and some schools, for example, do have plans that if a child at the school does commit suicide, that there is no public mo- memorial for that student, which is really hard. Uh, And when I heard that some schools do that, I was like, wow, like that seems harsh. Um, But the rationale behind it is this concept of contagion suicide. So it's a real thing. uh, And just related to that, at a high school that I worked at, um, before I got into journalism, there was a big, call it a controversy, if you will, but there was um, a student who committed suicide earlier in his career. But by the time his class became a senior, the senior class, the graduating Mm class, um, there was a, kind of an edict from the administration not to put a memorial page in the yearbook that year for him. And there were other students in that class that had died um, for other, you know, not from suicide. And there were m- memorial pages for them. But there wasn't a memorial page for the student who mm. um, had committed suicide. I think maybe probably the same rationale behind that. And I guess I, I wonder as educators, what is um, – you're already kind of hitting upon the very real um, emotional ambiguity of maybe wanting to address it but then not knowing how. Do you feel equipped to have these conversations uh, if need be with your students? I personally do. I have no problem talking with it and I don't really buy the idea that talking about it will plant the idea in a student's mind. If they've thought about it, they've thought about it. It's not like, I'm sad, what do I do? And then we talk about suicide and all of a sudden they get the idea. I think the contagion thing is real because of the way when when kids who already are considering it, they see somebody commit mm-hmm. suicide and then say, oh, this might actually be a legit solution. Mm-hmm. So it's not th- necessarily, about, from your viewpoint, it's not necessarily about the talking of it. It's just that the, the, the initial act then makes it more real for kids who are already kind of there right. mentally. Right, and I... I bring it up in my my classes. When I was a kid, I was uh, semi-suicidal once or twice, and and I tell my students that, and I said that you know I I came through it. If anybody here, I know what it feels like, so feel free to talk to me if you need to. And sometimes I'll talk to ind- individual ones. And um, can you say more about the your own thought process about wanting to 
um, reveal that to your students and be open about that with your students and, and why? Well, because a lot of times when students or anybody get to that point, they feel like that there's enough problems, nobody can really understand what it feels like to be them and and to suicide is not really talked about. So if, peop, if you uh, commit suicide and there's not much mentioned about it, then you think, oh, well, they were just holding it in. And I've since I've been there, I just kind of like pop the bubble and and uh, say, you know, a lot of people consider suicide. I considered suicide myself when I was younger. So you're not alone. I know how you feel. I know how that feels to just want to get that final solution. And um, and I don't push it. I just kind of say that like at the beginning of a class or something. And um, like you, so you would you bring this up if it was like in the news per se, or if if, if something had happened that had prompted you to say this or. I've never, like, I didn't bring up any of the, the recent suicides. Um, if there's something going on at school, um, a student is, has been removed for depression, or we d- recently did the all-school suicide training. Um, so if there's something local or whatever that makes it relevant, I'll bring it up. But I don't bring up the, uh, the news ones. Hmm. Um, uh, Maria. Yeah, I just yeah, and I, I think on my end, Paul, I don't make an announcement like publicly in front of class, but I have had multiple one-on-one conversations That's with students who too. reach a breaking point, and it's just mm-hmm. obvious, you right. know, that they're they're at a spot that they need support, um, and just being able to talk to them. I saw like the Columbia suicide protocol, and just simply asking a student, "Have you thought about hurting yourself? Mm-hmm. Do you have a plan to harm yourself?" It gives you a lot of information about their current state of mind. Um, and Kyle, earlier you had asked, like, you know, do we feel comfortable necessarily navigating it with students? I feel comfortable asking those questions when or if a student were... Those, those very direct questions that oh, are absolutely. Con- contained in the... And I can explain more about what the Columbia Protocol is, but... Yeah. Um, absolutely. You, you feel comfortable asking those questions, yeah. I mean, absolutely not, obviously, a whole group. But I think one-on-one, if a kid mm-hmm. is in distress, and that's obvious, you know, you, you pull them to the side, you have a conversation, you take that time... Um, and there have been a couple of times where I've asked individual students those questions. Um, and if a student were to say yes, at that point, no, I do not feel like that's something that's within my forte. And so that's like an immediate referral to a healthcare professional. Mm-hmm. But I do. But I think to your point, Greg, it's uncomfortable, but we have to get to a place where we as educators feel comfortable intervening in those questions, like with those questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found the kids are actually really honest like when you ask them that directly. I want to continue down that road just to um, give a little bit more explanation for what Maria is alluding to. It, uh, the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale, it's a well-known and rather widely used protocol that's aimed at empowering people like parents, friends, caregivers, even teachers, uh, to assess and then talk with people they may be worried about. It's basically a one-page questionnaire. You can actually print off a PDF of this at the Columbia uh, website. Um and it's, it's pretty simple. Um, questions like um, what you just said, Maria, have you wished you were dead or wished you could go to sleep and not wake up? And um, the person is asked to respond to that. If so, how many times in the past month? It also asks, um, have you actually had any thoughts about killing yourself? Mm-hmm. And have you ever thought how you might do this? So like actually getting to um, maybe do they have a plan mm-hmm. or how detailed of a plan is that? 
if after this questionnaire, the person doing the questioning thinks the person giving the answers is a high risk of suicide, and there is a way to um, calculate this pretty simply and easily on this questionnaire, then uh, the questionnaire also includes a number to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline to call in order to get more help. So I just want to be clear, it's not billed as a cure or even that major of an intervention. It's meant as a tool um, that a layperson can use quickly and, and pretty efficiently to get to an assessment of someone's state of mind. I will say when I when I and I did not use ever use that when I was a teacher, but I will say when I kind of went online and looked at it and thought about the questions, I have a personal taboo against like broaching mm-hmm. this type of subject um, with a student or with another person. But you're saying, Maria, in your experience, um, once you once you do get comfortable asking this question, it does elicit um, actionable information. It does. I mean, obviously, for like student privacy reasons, I can't really go into yeah. details. But uh, yeah, in my experience, I mean, I've asked kids, some kids, I, yeah, some kids have said no, and then explain and some kids have said, well, or yes, and, and explain. And then obviously, like you go from there. But I think the my mindset is it is my job to keep this kid safe. And I can't let my own like my own discomfort get in the way of protecting a kid or keeping them safe. And I would much rather ask uncomfortable questions and maybe get uncomfortable answers than uh, not and, and have something happen. Yeah, so my question for you, Maria, is how do you, how do you identify what students to broach that subject with? Because um, as, as I've read it so far, like a certain a good amount of, of people who do commit suicide – don't exhibit other mental health issues to begin mm. with. So, like, just because a, a student's in distress, um, you know, like, we see that all the time, but it could just be because, you know, they broke up with their boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, or because they had family issues at home, and we talk about right. those. Um, right. So how do you figure out which students to to discuss this with? Yeah, good question. I mean, since I'm not a, a like, a healthcare professional, I don't have a, I don't have, like, a, a test, if you will, that I apply. But here are some things. Like if a kid is upset and starts using language like hopeless or I don't see a way out of this or it's never going to stop or I always feel this way. If they're dealing in absolutes, that's a opportunity. Like, I don't know, that, that my ears prick up um, and I sort of ask more probing questions. Like, okay, well, tell me more. Like, how long have you felt this way? Like, is there anything else going on in life that feels really hard? Blah, blah. Just trying to get information. Um, I mean, I don't obviously like immediately after they say that, like jump to those questions. Mm-hmm. Those come after a longer conversation. But to your point, Greg, there are probably, unfortunately, kids that I've missed who aren't exhibiting those signs of distress. Um, and that's troubling. Yeah. Paul, anything to add to what Maria said based on Greg's question? Uh, I agree that you could. there are some signs. A lot of this, too, comes down to, because I've talked one-on-one with students, a lot of it comes down to you have to get to know them mm-hmm. so you can start to see the changes in behaviors or the uh, an ongoing change of mood. And they have to be able to trust you enough to talk to you. There's been, I've heard multiple conversations between students when we did the suicide training and they said, when they had a questionnaire to fill out, and they said, yeah, I lied on the questionnaire because I don't want them to call my parents. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they're not stupid. They know if you ask certain questions, they know where this is going. And so if, if they really want help, they'll be honest, and if they don't want help, they'll lie to you. But, um, but the, the key is to get to know them well enough to, to see the signals, and so you can, some of you can tell they're lying to you because, mm-hmm. because it doesn't fit. So it's 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 uh yeah, you're not going to catch everybody. It's just it's not possible, but if you can just even 
help one or two, then it's worth the uncomfortable question. Fairly or not, suicide is often viewed as a problem mainly impacting affluent or more affluent white kids. But there has been research recently that shows suicide rates for young African Americans has gone up to. A 2015 study published by the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics showed that between 1993 and 2012, suicide rates for very young African-American children ages 5 to 11 nearly doubled. Now, that rate for African-American children still remains lower than rates for other demographic groups like whites and Native Americans, but it was the biggest single jump of any demographic group in the study presented. Um, Do you buy into the perception that suicide is primarily an affluent white problem, or if you teach students of color, do you um, see it as being overlooked in the communities that you serve. Yeah, I think that's that's BS. Um, which which like, part of it's BS? Like, well, okay, so so you you look at the statistics on on the surface, and yes, uh, the suicide rates for for whites is significantly higher than for minorities. But that could be, um, and it, just looking up the research, it could be for a variety of, of reasons. It, be, it could be because um, suicide is just underreported or misreported. Uh, for minorities, or there's there's other reasons behind, like if if there was a homicide involved. Um, we don't really know how many of those homicides started as um, a suicidal act that, you know, a person just, um, they wanted a suicide by cop, essentially. Um, so in, in some ways, those those numbers are, are uh, for minorities, I think, could be artificially low. Um, just looking at, at our own experience, my own experience in teaching in an in inner city uh, charter school that is mostly minority, mostly Hispanic, and we've had issues of suicide. Um, and, and it, it does, it does happen. Um, you know, it, it, it's not just, it's not just a white thing. Can I ask you how, um, you've dealt, unfortunately you've dealt with that scenario before. How, how does your school community react? Yeah, it's, it's tough because, um, kind of like what you were saying about a memorial service, we actually, there was a, uh, you know, a memorial service in, in a couple instances for the families and the majority of school was there. Right, we didn't have it in school, but still, the majority of school was there, and and I thought it was it was actually helpful just for for healing for for the staff and the students that that were there. Um, but other than that, it's just like the normal responses that yes, we'll have more um, more counselors there available for for students and and for staff. Um, but yeah, it's it's really tough because we've had um, a staff member as well uh, that committed suicide a few years ago. It 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 just it's a difficult thing to deal with. That has to be terrible. Yeah, for the for the kids especially at, at uh, um, yeah who who still remember him. Um, you know this particular staff member. It's it, it, it's a difficult thing. It definitely leaves a hole. Wrapping up this conversation, uh, all of you have been in the classroom a, a while now. You've had a chance to um, assess the field and the profession over a long period of time. Do you feel like the way education and teachers in general are addressing these types of difficult, tough questions has changed or is even getting better than it was in the past? I say yes. When I first started teaching, none of this was ever mentioned at all, period. Um, And now we're mentioning it in the classrooms. Some teachers are, and we've had this suicide training protocol for everybody, and the the taboos of, of mentioning it are breaking down. Why do you think that is? Because I think it's become more as shootings become more um, prevalent and as bullying leads to more suicides that we hear in the media, then, and then as it becomes became clear that bringing it up to students does not put the idea in their head, 
Um, they don't live in a vacuum. And so talking about it seems to help more than not talking about it. And so uh, I think it's just been a slow process to realize that. Uh, I agree. I just wish we had more training, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. As a 15-year vet, we really haven't had that much, and, and I would like to be more informed. Well, that's a good place to end. Thank you so much for um, <coughs> talking about that, Paul. Thank you for being open and sharing um, your story with us. Um, and for those of you who've experienced it, whether it be with a student or a staff member, I, I'm really, really sorry. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Well, teachers more and more are pushing back against the increasingly realistic school shooter training drills they're being asked to undergo. Usually these happen at the start of the school year or at the start of a semester. A local law enforcement agency or even a private company will come in and have teachers role play what to do in the case of a shooter getting into the school. Many of these trainings, like the one that I did a few years back as a high school teacher here in the Kansas City area, involve teachers donning masks with clear eye guards and being shot at with Uh, pellet or airsoft guns. One drill like that at an Indiana elementary school earlier this year gained some national attention for the rather macabre turn that it took. Sheriff's deputies conducting the training at the school in Monticello, Indiana, lined some of the teachers up on their knees facing a wall and shot them in the backs with plastic pellets, warning them that this could happen if they didn't fight or run, but instead cowered in place During a shooting, the Indiana Teachers Union is now lobbying state lawmakers to prohibit projectiles being shot at staff or students during such drills. I thought that would have been in place already. Um, It would seem this could be a subject for satire, maybe a bad episode of The Office, if it wasn't all so serious. (laughs) Uh, The National Association of School Psychologists says shooter drills, just the training drills themselves, even ones that don't involve being shot at by pellet guns, can, quote, produce stress, anxiety, and traumatic symptoms in both teachers and students. Uh, so maybe first, I'd just like to hear from you at the table here uh, on this episode. Um, have you been through shooter drills before? I'd also be interested in hearing uh, to what extent they involve role playing and if your students also go through training. And is that different from from what you as a staff um, experience? Yeah, we've we I mean, of course, every year we have active shooter training, but only like maybe twice did we have um, officers come in and fire blanks. And that was without students. That was just the staff. And we weren't no projectiles were shot at at, at anybody. Again, they were just blanks. What was the purpose of firing blanks? You know, and I think this is maybe the the, the idea that you got to scare them to teach, you know, that way they'll learn, which is ridiculous. Um, we, we don't need to be so scared. So they were firing blank, like you were, yeah. describe this, I mean, I, don't so, know just, I want to hear more about this. So it was, it was like, you know, we're supposed to pretend like it's a, a, you know, normal day and then we hear shots and we're supposed to react accordingly. Um, you know, according to the protocol, either, you know, f- uh, flee, fortify, fight, what, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and so we go through the drill and, and most of us, you know, just lock our doors, cat, you know, like sit in the corner and, and in the darkened room and get our laptops out and start grading papers while, while this is going on. Um, yeah. Like, was it necessary? I, I don't know. We haven't done the, 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 uh, training with the blanks in, in number of years. And I don't, uh, was it, was it effective? I, 
I don't think it was any more effective than not having it and just somebody on the intercom saying, active shooter drill, start now. Were teachers, I don't know, were they upset? Did they, what, were their, what were their reactions to having yeah, see, blanks and, fired in their school? And, and, and that's the other side. I think the, uh, the overreaction on the other side where, where people like are feeling trauma from that is fairly ridiculous, but that might just be me and my background, like going out to the shooting range and fire and and you know firing firearms because it it you know like time on the range is 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 a good time like so I'm used to hearing it so it didn't seem like that big of a deal and so like for me like having you know adults you know feeling tra- traumatized by somebody firing blanks is somewhat ridiculous but that just be that's probably just me uh, Paul Maria uh, your active shooter training experiences and how you feel about it Yeah I, I yeah, I don't – well, yeah, a couple things. One, we do have active shooter drills. I can't remember if they occur every two years or three years. I think every two years at my school, never with students uh, because, as I mentioned in the previous segment, many of our students, unfortunately, and Paul, you echoed this mm-hmm. as well, do have experience with gun violence. Um, I do not know I do I cannot say or speak for the school that that is the reason why we don't involve students but that is my guess and certainly my strong preference would be to not necessarily involve students in an active shooter drill um, because it could trigger them and I think uh, you know, Greg, to your point, it may seem based on your background ridiculous for people to be traumatized. But I know at my school, we actually take it like there's a lot of care and concern that goes around the active shooter drill. We always do it in August during our August PD. And it's always on the calendar. People know week or two weeks in advance. And there's always an announcement that as an adult or like as a staff member, if for whatever reason you feel like you don't want to participate or you want to like opt into a, I don't know, just like a more of a like a sit down and like talking about a plan. There's that option, uh, and we always take time to, like, process as a staff. We do not use – I think – I don't know. I actually feel really good about the way that we do active shooter drills at my school because we, for example, we don't have police come in. We have our security staff at the school do it. They don't use blanks, um, and it's always under controlled circumstances, so there's always, like, a very clear plan before we do the drill so we know – exactly which security officer is going to be playing the role of the active shooter um, so that, like, you know, like, okay, like, we know it's going to be so-and-so. We know it's going to be Chris. Uh, and then we talk, and then we, like, kind of, like, break out into rooms, and then one person is assigned to play the role of the teacher, and then the other adults are assigned to play the role of students. And we go through all the different options for the ALICE training, which I don't remember. I don't remember what ALICE always stand like, all the different, it's like, alert, lockdown, inform, do you guys know what I'm talking about? E is escape. E is escape. What's C? Dang, I don't remember. Shoot, I failed my Alice training. But um, <laughs> well, this is this is not good. Both you and Greg couldn't remember what the, what the term. No, well, it's three Fs. So he's right. It's yeah, three it, Fs. It's fight, flee, and fortify. Okay, yeah, Those fight. are your options okay. for uh, like engaging. Yeah. But then, like if you're encountered by the actual oh C shooter. C is counter counter. Yeah. C there you go. Fight back. Like basically fight back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Four out of five ain't bad. <laughs> two every two years. But anyway. Um, we, I had the role actually this last year to, to play, or I had the, the opportunity to play the role of the teacher in our list last year's active shooter training. Um, it's very sobering. It's a somber, it's a somber occasion, but I'm also glad to have the opportunity to practice and also just like take time to mentally think through, okay, if I were in a classroom with students and I heard noises or I, or over the intercom, yeah. there was an announcement that there was an active shooter. 
what would I have them do? Um, and obviously it depends on like which room you're in. And it was very helpful to be able to be like, well, if I'm in this room, the best option is to go right back down, like to flee because we're right next to the back stairs and the odds of the shooter coming up those stairs is extremely minimal. So, so this, I mean, it sounds like your experience, you feel like it was uh, effective in, in getting you to think about what uh, you might do, how you might react. It seems like maybe mm-hmm. the, the twist of having teachers line up and get shot in the back might might be a step too far. I just, like I yeah. I, what's the point? I just don't. What's the rationale of that? Yeah. Like, what's the point? Is the point to try to teach people a lesson to care and to take it seriously? Because I I would I have a tough time believing that somebody's not taking those sort of things seriously. I mean, I I and if they're not already taking it seriously, shooting them in the back with a pellet is going to make them do so. I don't get that logic. Paul. We have uh, training once a year with the blanks. We well, you have, do the blanks as well. Yeah, we have a security team that I guess it's their job to go around to schools and, and do this. But um, this is during done during, not with students, this is done during a professional development day just with teachers. And they go and they, and they fire the blanks. I think it's a good idea, one, because, I mean, they're trying to get us to know what it sounds like if a gun goes off in a school. And to get the get our panic, I mean, it's like doing drills. If you actually do hear it, then the chance that you're just going to freeze is lower um, mm. if you've gone through the practice before. Mm. The um, some of the teachers get really traumatized, but it's not necessarily by the by the pellet gun, but it's some of the um, scenarios that yeah. naturally come up. Yeah. Um, like, say more if you will. Like, what do you mean? Well, so like they um, they mentioned that you know, like if students or you are in the bathroom when it happens, you know what you should try to do: try to get out if you can, or hide, or whatever. And then, so then I brought up: so what if one of my students is in the bathroom? We hear shooting, and the student comes running down the hall to my door to for me to let them in. Yeah, it's like banging on the door. Banging on the door. And, not... the, and they said that's um, really, you shouldn't let them yeah, in. Yeah, you're not supposed to let them in. You're not supposed to let them in because it's a uh, um, a big safety risk um, in case the shooter is right there and can get into the room too. And so, you know, we were told the basic idea is don't let the kid in. They have to fend for themselves. And that... Uh, that was very traumatic for mm-hmm. teachers. Yeah, that was for, it was traumatic mm-hmm. for a lot of teachers thinking uh and one one woman has a a daughter and she said straight out she's like if that was my daughter out there i would risk all the other students lives to let my daughter in and so uh it's a it's a um it's that's a that's a mind screw for a lot of teachers um but yet at the same time paul make you make it sound as if ultimately um the experience you were put through you found um useful yeah, I do. Unfortunately, I, I did find it useful. <laughs> yeah, um, unfortunately that you have to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have any of you noticed a change, particularly in the past year since Parkland? Um, is there more attention on how schools are preparing for potential shootings, how they prepare for them? Um, I, I think universally for you three and for all the teachers who participate in No Wrong Answers, I mean, I think we're all pretty disgusted at the fact that we have to do this. Um, but I wonder if, I don't know, has has the feeling around it changed since last year for you? And whether you feel like it's needed, whether you feel like it's effective, whether even like the tactics used to train you have changed? For me, it changed. It didn't change last year. It changed after um, 
the, the elementary school. Sandy Hook. Sandy Hook. It happened yeah. after Sandy Hook is when the change happened, um, from my experience. And because uh, um, that was when we started doing the, the shooter drills and stuff. It's after that. And so last last year was just sort of a, a booster shot to keep doing it. Hmm. What's the line? I mean, I think um, you have all kind of said, ultimately, this is necessary. Um, we should do it. Um, it does help me get ready if, God forbid, something like this were to happen at my school. Um, but yet, it, is there a line for like what goes too far, um, and, and and what should be that line? I guess, like, in yeah, terms of training sh- you. Sure, I mean, I think this is what Maria brought up earlier. Since most of our like my students coming from the inner city have experience uh, in their neighborhoods with with gun violence, um, having active shooter drills with with ammo, with any type of ammo involved, is just a bad idea. Because mm-hmm. um, the the point is to train, not to trigger. So um, exactly, you know, yeah. we, we you know there's there's a pretty clear line. We just we want to be as prepared as possible, um, and, and at the same time being optimistic that it, that it will never happen. But just in case, if God forbid, it actually does, that we are as prepared as possible. Well, we'll move on to our final uh, topic of this episode. It's been a few weeks, and we're still uh, thinking about and considering the aftermath of the college admissions cheating scandal. Just an update on that before I go any further. Many of the parents accused of bribing their kids' way into elite colleges have started appearing in federal court making pleas, including a Napa Valley vineyard owner as well as the heiress to the Hot Pockets fortune. Who knew? Oh, my goodness. Hot pocket. Anyway, uh, this whole scandal has prompted the country into a discussion over the myriad ways in which rich families and their kids take advantage of a system that often excludes and marginalizes poorer students and students of color. We've talked about that on the podcast the last couple of weeks. One particular aspect of the scandal hits close to home for many of our teachers, especially our high school teachers. Several kids at the center of this cheating scandal and their parents are accused of abusing extended time accommodations on the ACT and SAT. As you may well know, federal law allows students to request accommodations on standardized exams. Um, If they have learning disabilities, of course, it's meant as a way to level the playing field. But these privileged kids were allegedly faking learning disabilities in order to get up to 50 or even 100 percent extra time to complete the tests, presumably to be able to do better on them. Uh, Some parents going as far as to finagle doctor's notes to document um, a learning disability their child um, actually did not have in order to get this accommodation. Um, That's a conversation in and of itself, but this also um, has us thinking more broadly about these questions. Why do we put time limits on tests like the ACT and SAT? Do they serve a purpose? And should we keep timing big standardized tests? So actually, all three of you are high school teachers, as I mentioned earlier. So you all have students who uh, take the ACT and or SAT every year. And I guess just first of all, what is the purpose of timing those tests? Why do it? And in, in my opinion, it's it's more of a practical matter. You need to, in order to help eliminate cheating, you have to get everybody in one room to take it. But if you didn't put a time limit, then you would, the proctor would hand them out at 8 a.m. and say, just get them to me whenever. <laughs> so um, that's just not... It's logistical for you. It's a logistical <laughs> thing. I mean, I don't think there's any particular reason itself to be timed other than it's just logistics. Well, is there, but there is an intellectual challenge to, to, to dealing with the time. <laughs> yeah, I think there is some rigor in... There's rigor in speed. 
like the the rate at which you can complete a task and the speed at which you can complete a task does indicate some level of proficiency. That being said, I think what we really need to ask some serious questions about, well, I mean, what I, I, I should say, like, I, I have a lot of problems with the ACT and the SAT, uh, and I have a lot of problems with standardized tests in general. Yeah, Maria brought her soapbox in while she got to the studio. Today, I so did. I have a lot of problems right with them. <laughs> I have, yeah, I have a lot of problems with them. Uh, but, I, like, for example, I have a problem with the fact that, like, students of color generally perform at much lower rates. I have uh, issues with standardized tests that assume a lot of – there's a lot of presumptive knowledge uh, around culture that often benefits – White uh, white people and white do test you, takers. Do you think time limits are a part of that? A part of the disproportionate um, results. Mm. Well, I think that I think timing is a way to weed people out, right? I don't know that that's necessarily along lines of race. I, I just don't have that research. But what I do know is that time. Like I think yes, it's a logistical matter, but it's also if I can if I can complete. X number of problems at Y time, but I can complete A number of problems in B amount of time, um, and B amount of time is shorter. If I have like two different students who can or can complete basically the same number of problems but in different amounts of time, uh, that helps like weed them out, right? And you're going to get a higher score, and that's that does speak to like your processing abilities, right? <laughs> On IQ tests, which I also have a lot of qualms with, so my soapbox is. <laughs> well, I, I want to get back but. to potential alternatives um, if we're not going to time test. But uh, Greg, I wanted to get um, you in here as well. Your experience with um, kids dealing with the time nature of these exams. What what did they say about? Yeah, this? our kids, my kids, suck at the ACT. <laughs> they they they're they're <laughs> off Put it right out there, Greg. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and they're taking all the juniors. All of our juniors are taking the ACT. We're administering it to them on Tuesday, and and in general, uh, we are not great at the at the ACT, and it's mainly because of, of the time. Um, mm-hmm. For in, in contrast, the our state tests we do pretty well in the state tests. We we score really high um, in comparison to our to our brethren in the Kansas City uh, area. So we, we score pretty well. It's just on the ACT, our our averages is, is. And we should really say the state low. test is not timed. And the state test is, is exactly the state test is not timed. So it's it's mainly the. Um, the time issue. Having said that, I really don't have a problem with the time on the ACT because you uh, personally, pers- well, yeah. and and for, what is the purpose of the ACT and SAT? It's it's supposedly a predictor of um, how a kid is will be successful in college. Um, I think we get into trouble when admin schools, teachers, parents, they start looking at ACT scores as a measure of a school's academic rigor and success. Because then that's two totally different things that, that you're trying to measure. And it, it's it, a school's ACT score does not um, – it, it doesn't show everything. And, and along with that, just reinforcing with students that no matter what you get, that does not say anything about the quality of your character. That it's, it's totally different things, Absolutely. right? Um, that that you may be a wonderful – You're more than just the number that you get on, on the ACT. Yeah, but Greg, back to your point, you're saying, I mean, the time limit really is the thing that trips up sure. your kids the most. Sure. And I think, Maria, you, you said you had a story about this too, where, where for, for my students, a lot of them um, are in our ELL program or – English is the second language spoken at home, and so their reading level is is far below where it should be. So even as like juniors and seniors, their reading reading levels at a sixth, seventh grade level. Of course, they're gonna the, it 
a lot of the ACT is just a reading test. Yeah, there's only one section, one subtest that's a reading test, but the rest of it is really a reading test. And if you do not read fast and you don't comprehend fast, you're not in general going to do well in the ACT. Yeah, and speaking of timing, like, you know, since I just like speaking of timing, yeah, the story was that I have a kid who is his English is his second language. He speaks Spanish at home. And ACT at this time, or at least last year when he was taking it, does not offer extended time for students based on English language proficiency. And I was deeply frustrated by that. And this kid, God bless him, was getting 13s, 14s, 15s, 16s on his practice tests. On a scale of 36 if it's ACT, right? right, Yeah, Right. And for like listeners at home, 21 is the 50th percentile. So that's the national average. So he was well below the national average on this test. And I found that very frustrating because I knew that if he had had extra time or potentially had math questions read aloud to him or had some sort of accommodation to acknowledge the fact that he is not he's not low achieving. He is just learning how to speak and process English and had had a little bit of extra support with that, he would have had a much higher score. It ended up having a good a positive ending uh, because he ended up getting a higher score, a score that was enough to get him into UCM and earn University a scholarship. Of, University of Central Missouri. University of Central Missouri. Yes, thank you. Uh, and earn a scholarship. So he's going to be okay. But he had to bust his butt for that. And we really had to go to bat for him and push him more than I think we like should have had to. Hmm. Um, just for uh, the, the factual standpoint, uh, time limits are the most common accommodation granted by the College Board for the ACT and SAT. Um, and the controversy over time limits is not a new one. It's been discussed about uh, for years. Um, researchers and educators have, uh, I think, long... Uh, suspected that the system is unfair and even vague over how you grant time accommodations. And um, in fact, this story idea, though I saw it in the news, was forwarded to me by another one of our No Wrong Answers teachers who says, I have students doing this at my school. I know I do. Um, uh, Actually requesting extended time when they don't necessarily need it based on whether they have a learning disability or not. Um, Ruth Kolker is a law professor at Ohio State University specializing in disability law, and she has called for the College Board to actually stop timing the ACT and SAT. She argued in a recent paper published in the Seton Hall Law Review that the College Board, in fact, is in violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act because the time nature of the test disparately impacts students with intellectual or learning disabilities, effectively discriminating against them. Um, Do you buy that? Is the ACT and SAT discriminatory? Uh, whether it be based on your a learning disability or some some other sort of class or or, or demographic. Well, I think Maria mentioned it. It is discriminatory, it, but it it's supposed to be. It's supposed to weed people out. Now, whether it's it's um, weeding out people unfairly based on you know because they have a disability, um, that's that's something completely different. Um, I mean, if if they're not getting if people with with disabilities with an honest disability, not not a fudged one. Um, aren't getting the accommodations necessary that are available, um, then that, yeah, that's, that's a problem. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of tweaking that can be done or maybe even alternate tests. But I think another reason part of the, for the time limit is to, there has to be a way to, like Greg said, discriminate in, a, in the technical sense. Not, uh, in the, not in the discriminatory not sense. Not in the discriminatory <laughs> sense, but um, the test is designed to not 
be finished by the average student. I mean, right. if somebody, mm-hmm. people do get perfect scores. People get 36s. And, uh, and that's a big deal. And so, I mean, to be able to rank the students, I mean, it does make a difference in how, what kind of scholarships you're going to get. If you gave everybody infinite time and over half the people ended up with a perfect score because of that, then that's also not that helpful. So then if we're acknowledging, and I, and I, and I buy the point that the ACT and SAT are supposed to be um, discriminatory in the fact that they are supposed to um, result in different kids meeting different levels um, so that you can tell who's the highest achieving. Should we, should we start looking at these tests differently? Should they, should they play less of a role in, in who gets into college? I think certain colleges have already started doing that because you do have some colleges that are open admission. Um, test optional. That, that, that have test optional. So I think colleges are doing that on their own. That might not be for like our high, higher achieving colleges and universities, but at least there are other options out there. Uh, really going back to uh, what uh, law professor Ruth Kolker wrote, she uh, not only calls the SCT and ACT discriminatory, we just talked about that, but she goes on to propose an alternative format. Um, for big timed exams like the ACT and SAT, or also the LSAT as well, which is to get into law school. She envisions a test with fewer questions, more time, though not necessarily unlimited time, and an opportunity for students to go back and double-check their answers. Would any adjustments like that, you think, um, enable the kids that you teach to um, be more successful? Would you buy into any of those types of adjustments to the test as a teacher? I have no idea if those adjustments would work or not. I mean, I'm completely clueless. I would be okay with trying it. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I don't, th- I don't think we'll ever reach an answer unless we try it. Yeah. I, I mean, potentially, right? It's hard to say. What I the, – the tension that I feel is I, – I, I, as much – I mean, again, soapbox, haha, funny. But like I, as much as I have qualms with like the ACT and the SCT, I actually am in favor of the idea of standardized testing, which I think can be taboo for – um, teachers to say because like oh my god it's very popular I think within our profession to be like oh no we don't like the test but I actually I understand the position that colleges are in because you're getting applications from students across the country and one AP class and one AP teacher you know my AP US history class uh, I would respectfully submit is a quality rigorous class but that does not mean that every single AP US history class is and so just because a kid is taking the same quote-unquote class actually does not – is not an indi- indicator necessarily of similar quality and similar rigor, whereas standardized tests are exactly that. They are standardized. There is a level playing field or – well, perhaps not a level playing field, but there is like – every kid is taking the same thing, so it is apples to There's apples. There's a normative result. There is a normative result. And I do But not normative think inputs. <laughs> that's what I would respectfully okay. argue. I, I, I would I'm sorry. I, I, just, that, I just took your words out of your I'm sorry. Okay. I stepped no, right no. on you. You're okay. You can steal my thunder because I still have my soapbox. But uh, no, but I, but I think like there is a normative output. And I actually I do think that that's a worthy goal. And I do think that it is important for us to have measures by which we are comparing students from across the country along relatively equal measures, though. Where I would actually want to spend time, I think, you know, Kolker talking about, well, here are all these students on the back end. Honestly, my preference, shocker, would be on the front end, what are we doing proactively to ensure that these tests are not just equal but equitable? Uh, Before we go to kids these days, uh, let's tell you about some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. 
Senator Kamala Harris of California says if she's elected president in 2020, she will push to boost teacher pay in a big way. Harris recently unveiled a plan that would add more than $300 billion towards raising teacher salaries over a decade. The proposal, if carried out, could mean a boost in pay for teachers on average of $13,500 per year per teacher. Harris's campaign notes teachers currently make about 11 percent less on average than other college-educated professionals. School districts in Washington state appear to be relying increasingly on teachers who are not fully trained in order to fill vacancies. An analysis by the Seattle Times finds the number of new teachers hired in the most recent year of record-keeping far surpassed the number of graduates of teacher training programs in the state. At the same time, the number of certificates issued to educators to allow for partially trained teachers to work in schools nearly tripled in that same time. And students in Charlottesville, Virginia, walked out of school this week and are demanding broader reforms after a racist threat online targeted their school. Charlottesville High School's Black Student Union repeated some of their demands. They began making after the white supremacist rally roiled that city in 2017. They want the district to hire more teachers of color and put more resources towards African-American history courses. Um, By the way, a 17-year-old boy who lived near Charlottesville was arrested in connection with making that online threat. Those are some of the other education stories that caught our eye this week. Coming up, kids these days. But first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kaufman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control in what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days. Greg, what are your kids into? This is more about what kids are kids are not into. Um, <laughs> well, I'll change, and it's, change it's, the it's, segment concept. <laughs> um, well, this week was opening day, so and and I absolutely love baseball, major league baseball, and and um, you know just full disclosure, I do have a Casey Royal tattoo on my on my shoulder. <laughs> uh, huge baseball fan, and we do have several kids who who are big into baseball that that live and 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 breathe and, and die by baseball. They're on the baseball team, and I, and I love talking to them. But the vast majority of our Latino students um, don't know anything, don't care. Don't know what's going on. They they had no idea what opening day is, was, or or you know what happened. Uh, and this was it, it, this was no more prevalent than this past week, where I had a student um, who got a brand new tattoo. Um, tattoos may be the one thing that they they are into. Actually, it's just it's it's that that is pretty popular in, in our school. And anyway, so this kid um, shows up with a brand new tattoo on his forearm, and for all the world, it looked like the Houston Astros logo. And I was like, man. Dude, Jose, you're, you're a big Astros fan. I didn't know, like, why are you from Houston? And he looked at me like I was a bug, like like I, I was speaking a foreign language. And he goes, no, mister, that's for my, my last name, Hernandez. <laughs> and it dawned on me that this kid, not only could he probably not name a single member of the Houston Astros, but probably didn't realize there was a team called the Houston Astros <laughs> at all. So it, they're, at least my kids, not into baseball as much. <laughs> I'm sorry, Greg. It hurts. You'll have to bond over tattoos. You have to bond over tattoos instead. It hurts. Yeah. Uh, Paul, what are your kids into? Uh, I've had um, quite a few uh, 
um, students this week talk about the movie Us. Oh yeah, a lot of mm-hmm. them went, went to go mm-hmm. see that, and so they were they were talking about it and asking me how I interpreted it, and and you have seen it. I have seen it, oh. yeah. And so uh, that one's that one is uh, talk of the students. No spoilers. No spoilers. I have not seen it yet either. So, no spoilers. Um, but what was their general their general take? The general take was that it was good. It wasn't quite as good as Get Out, uh, Peel's first film, but that. And it was more confusing than Get Out, but um, nobody, everybody says they liked it. Yeah. That's interesting. That's a hot take. Most people think that, uh, what I, I also haven't seen it, but a lot of what I've been reading online is, says that Us is better than Get Out. So I bet from the high school perspective, though, <coughs> the simplicity and straightforwardness of the Get Out plot yeah. probably, um, if mm. Us is more complicated, yeah, it's more to interpret. Maybe a little bit more at deeper psychologically, maybe. Yeah. Um, maybe for the high school set. <laughs> that might appeal more. Um, I'm making assumptions. Who knows? Uh, Maria, what are your kids into? My kids are into college, and they are into like a bunch of like different literally into programs. college. Yeah, um, <laughs> I just I am so 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 proud of them. We uh, just found out a couple days ago that one of our seniors was admitted to both Princeton and Yale, so wow. she will yeah. have. I know, so excited for her. Um, her, te- her ACT score was good. Um, and, you, and you teach seniors, we should say. You teach the, the graduating I, class? I, that- well, I teach juniors, okay. but I taught the you current taught- seniors okay. last year, and I taught them for two years. So that's wonderful. We also had another, another student, uh, separate from her, uh, find out that he has earned the Ron Brown Scholarship. So there's he's one of 25 seniors in the country who's wow. been selected for that, and he will get $40,000 to the Whoa. college of his choice. So those are just the two from last week. Um, but I'm just, like, so proud of them and uh, am really proud of what our kids are doing, not just for themselves, but also really proving, I think, closing the belief gap that I think we still have here in Kansas City around what kids of color can do, and nationally, uh, what kids of color can do and what they can achieve when they're given the opportunity. They're killing it. I love them. We should say for your school, this this senior class, is it the first senior they class? They are, they are. and they're going to graduate yeah. in a couple weeks, and I'm already investing in Kleenex. <laughs> <laughs> Buy stock in Kleenex. I'm helping them. <laughs> uh, well, thanks to our teachers this week, Greg Brenner, Paul Donovan, and Maria Kennedy. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. Remember, you can go to our website, nowronganswerspodcast.com. Sign up for our Friday cheat sheet. Until next time, remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. Be nice to your teachers.